are you going to preach instead? No, you are, Dan. <laughs> but I, I wanted to ask you two questions. Um, uh, how did you feel when you turned up to church this morning? Like, I, I felt like I got the wrong Sunday and I rang a Stedford Hall to say, what's going on? <laughs> Have I got the wrong Sunday? But anyway, you turned up and we had the lectern in, uh, the, uh, in that mosh pit. <laughs> how did you feel? I was about to go home. <laughs> <laughs> um, my second question is, um, how are you feeling about preaching this morning this is your first time I think uh, preaching in the morning uh, how are you feeling at the moment uh, <laughs> yeah a little nervous as as I think people would expect um, <laughs> I think my nerves are driven by just a desire to to please God and make sure I don't lead people astray <laughs> yeah. I don't think I am doing that though <laughs> I, I sent out two questions, but I've got a third one. And the third one is this. When, when I preached for the first time at Moore College um, uh, and I had to speak in front of uh, Peter Jensen and, and co, and they adjudicated, because we're going to adjudicate, we've got the table over there and a the table down the back, we're going to adjudicate you and hold up our scorecards in a minute. Roy and Roger up the back. Um, uh, they, uh, I think it was Peter Jensen said to me, uh, just relax, Trevor, just remember, remember that God is your only witness. And that freaked me out. <laughs> <laughs> how are you feeling about, ultimately, God is your only witness, but how are you feeling? <laughs> Worse now. <laughs> I'll pray for... You're already holding up your score, score, scorecard. Uh, Craig we'll, told me that this is like the live worm on on those election <laughs> nights, so as so you like approve or, or disapprove of the sermon, it'll... <laughs> oh, so, so they've hooked up that third yeah, screen, yeah, have they, for the live worm? The, the okay, so you can all vote. <laughs> How about, um, yeah, what matters ultimately is his vote. Yeah. Um, and he's done that in Jesus. Father, we, we uh, thank you that because of Jesus we can pray to you and we ask, Lord, that you may calm all of us as we listen to you through your servant, Dan. Uh, thank you for the gifts and abilities you have blessed him with. May you continue to fan into flame those we ask. May you also continue to bless them, him and Lucy and Edith, with a, a lovely little girl. Uh, please, Lord, watch over uh, Lucy in that respect and bless them with uh, wonderful parenting skills to raise up their two girls. Uh, to follow Jesus. But we ask for calmness upon all of us, including our dear brother here now, uh, that you may help us all, Father, to remember ultimately that you are our witness and uh, the way we live our life ultimately is pleasing to you. Help us, we ask. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Do you want to pray? You, I will pray. You, you yeah. pray. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to pray too. Let's keep praying. Our gracious Father, help us to be guided by your word today. Lord, may our hearts and lives be gripped by your compassion and your mercy, and may our faith deepen because of your words to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I love hot chips, and uh, that's probably not what you wanted to hear, the first line of the sermon, but I mean, I really love hot chips. Growing up, it became our Thursday night meal, sausages and hot chips from the Rumbly Tummy Fish and Chip Shop in Redcliffe. And I look forward to chip night every week. 
Uh, since getting married, I've subjected poor Lucy to this fried treat weekly. And in two short years, I've ensured that Edith's favourite food are chippies. <laughs> so it really caught my attention last week when I read a headline of an article that was titled, Stop Eating Hot Chips Now. True to my generation, I couldn't go past this clickbait, and with trepidation, I opened the article. The article cited a study done in China where they claimed that people who consumed a large amount of fried food, in particular fried potatoes, were an increased risk of both depression and anxiety. Now you can imagine <laughs> news like this to someone like me with a love like mine was devastating. But I have to tell you, I'm unmoved in my love of hot chips. <laughs> I will continue eating hot chips. And why? Well, I simply don't believe it. I don't believe what I read, so I'm not altering my weekly hot chip habits. Um, belief and unbelief move us in ways like this, and when we believe something, we act according to that belief. Similarly, when we don't believe, we act according to our disbelief. In the passage today, we see this as well. We see those who believe that Jesus is the Messiah act accordingly, and those who don't believe act accordingly. It is our faith or lack of that drives us. And uh, we're going to start with verses 17 and 18 and the first point on our outlines today, a world divided. When Jesus stepped into the world, we learn that its people had been condemned already from verse 18. Its people were under God's wrath already, and that's from verse 36. It had been this way since Adam and Eve rejected God's truth in the garden. And Romans 5.16 tells us the judgment followed one sin, Adam's sin, and brought condemnation. Yet at great cost, God chooses to enact a rescue mission for the condemned. He sends Jesus, whose highest priority is not condemning, but returning condemned souls to the Father. In his coming, though, Jesus did cause division. His very presence divided the world into those who believe and those who do not believe. And very sadly, we see that unbelief confirms one's status as condemned and remaining under God's wrath. It's a little like a patient receiving the diagnosis of a severe infection that, if left untreated, would result in death. And when the doctor prescribes treatment, the patient rejects that treatment. The diagnosis and the outlook remain, and death is inevitable. So we're left to ask, what do you believe? Or what do your family members believe? What do your friends or neighbours believe? We all need to be certain, because there is a rescue mission underway, and the consequences are eternal. In verses 19 to 21, John the author, and I'll refer to John the author and John the Baptist, so we know the difference, because both are referred to in this passage. Uh, in verses 19 to 21, John the author pleads with us to come to the light. John refers to Jesus as the light throughout his gospel. And it may be helpful to think of the light in other ways as well. Yes, Jesus is the light. The light is also holiness. The light is truth. And the light is the revelation of God's plan, the gospel. And just as light illuminates, it reveals and exposes, so too do each of these things. The light reveals and exposes our unholiness, our unrighteousness, and our need for Jesus. 
And in the presence of this light, we're left with two options. Firstly, there are those who reject and hate the light. And there is a sort of willful ignorance in that they know the light is there, but they don't want to come to it. They don't want to accept it. They remain hidden in the dark where they can continue in their ways. And why? Well, because they love the darkness. They are so bound and chained to sin that they cannot bear to part from it. It's probably a little simplistic, but it's the same as saying, I know it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. And secondly, there are those who accept the truth and come to the light. They see the holiness of God and know they do not measure up. They see the righteousness of Christ and acknowledge their unrighteousness. They see the perfection of Jesus and know they are imperfect. Yet they accept this truth and instead of running in fear and shame back to darkness, they come to the light. They acknowledge their need for a saviour. They repent and believe. As a teacher, there are times when I'm very aware that a student has done the wrong thing. Perhaps I've seen it quite clearly. Yet when I confront and accuse with the truth, I will usually see one of two responses. Either the child accepts my accusation and admits they're wrong, or before I've even landed my accusation, they've kind of filled their chest with air and they're poised, ready to deny, ready to reject the truth that I present. And these are the two responses we see in the passage, a rejection or an acceptance, a fleeing from or a coming to. But our world today seems so dark that those who hate the light don't have to flee too far to find darkness. As truth is abandoned more and more and permissiveness is embraced, the darkness becomes more widespread and it's easier to do evil publicly. And we see it in the way our society protects the rich and disregards the poor, the vulnerable and the needy. And we see it in the abandonment of common sense, allowing gender to be a choice rather than biological and discipline to be hateful and harmful rather than loving and caring. And we see it in the way the world has become increasingly busy, making no time for each other, no time for rest and no time for God. We see it in lots of ways. And it appears as though God has been squeezed out. But we can take heart because John 1.5 says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. For Christians who believe and accept the truth but live amongst this darkness, the temptation is real. We are not immune to sin, nor are we immune from the temptation to conceal our sin in darkness. Yet the fruit of belief is demonstrated in that we come to the light and we keep coming to the light. You can't get a greater contrast than light and dark. And so should there be such a contrast in the fruit of a believer's life when compared with an unbeliever's. The evidence of a believer is living a life consistent with coming to the light. Ephesians 5, 8 to 13 says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So live as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. 
There is such a powerful transformation of the heart that occurs when one leaves the darkness and comes to the light. And as we heard last week, they are born again, like a caterpillar to a butterfly. They are new, with a new heart, with new desires, new attitudes and new behaviours. You will know the believer because their belief will cause them to do good, to please the Lord, to imitate God and to flee from sinfulness. And so, to be certain, we must ask ask ourselves, does the fruit of our life reveal darkness or light? And there's just a further point that I want to make about verse 21. When we hate the light and flee to darkness, our guilt is upon our own head. Uh, But when we come to the light, we haven't saved ourselves. Instead, it is God's gift of grace through Christ that saves us. John 3.16 There's a sense in verse 21 that when we come to the light, it is only by God's power. Therefore, in coming to the light, God is glorified because of his powerful work in us. 2 Corinthians 12.9 says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. In other words, when we come to him, his power is seen. It's magnified. In a way, we too become a light, a beacon that points to him. And as we read on in this passage, John the author gives us the perfect example of how we can point to the light. Looking at verses 22 to 30 now, John the Baptist's disciples seem to be jealous that everyone is going to Jesus to be baptised. They don't seem to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. They don't seem to give him that credit. John's response to their unbelief is to testify to who Jesus is. Seeing people going to Jesus to repent and be baptised, that is the climax of John's ministry. It was the whole point of it. He says, I'm not the Messiah, but was sent to prepare the way. I am merely the best man at this wedding, preparing for the groom. And upon witnessing God's plan being carried out in Jesus, John the Baptist is filled with joy. John knows the spotlight must now fall on Jesus, Jesus must take the stage and John must retreat to make way for him. John was so delighted in Christ's superiority that he wanted Jesus to be magnified and for himself to shrink away. A Christians should be like John. When we become children of the light and live according to our belief, we are essentially a light that points to Jesus. Christ's power at work in us transforms us and produces good fruit. This is exactly what John the Baptist suggests, verse 30. He must become greater, I must become less. In us, there should be increasingly more of Jesus and less of ourselves. This testifies to Jesus. And Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Those good works are a reflection of the Father in heaven. It's a little like seeing a well-behaved child and attributing that to the parents or how a meal, which is absolutely delicious, like hot chips, reflects honour upon the one who made it. Maybe not like hot chips. (laughs) You just fry those. As it says in Matthew 5.14, you are the light of the world. Christ's light has illuminated us And we should point others to Christ by letting them see the work he has done in our lives. 
It requires us to elevate our enjoyment of God in our lives, just as John was full of joy. Like a citation or reference in an essay, we need to attribute God for his ongoing work and transformation of our lives. When actors give their acceptance speeches at the Oscars, they invariably thank someone who helped them get there, their spouse, producer, agent, and we need to credit God always. And in doing so, we are pointing others to the goodness of Christ. John the author rounds out this passage and chapter by pleading with us to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, so that by believing we might have life in his name. And this is the very purpose for John writing this book, as he records in John 20, 31. At the beginning, I told you after reading that article about hot chips, I remained unchanged because I did not believe. Well, the truth is, I don't actually know. I chose not to believe because I loved hot chips too much to give them up. It's a bit like loving the darkness. If it turns out to be true, then my unbelief makes me guilty and I reap the consequences. Many of the Jews whom John the author was trying to persuade did not believe because they did not accept that Christ was the Son of God. And many people today are the same. They accept that Christ was an historical figure, but they also don't accept that he was God. Verses 31 to 35 tell us differently. They tell us Jesus is God. Verse 31, Jesus is not just a teacher, as Nicodemus presumed at the beginning of chapter 3, but Jesus is from above and he is above all. Verse 32, Jesus testifies to the things he has seen and heard, and he has been in heaven with God since the beginning. Therefore, what he speaks of is not second-hand testimony. Verse 34, God sent Jesus to relay God's message directly. Prophets in the past received the Spirit in measure, but Jesus received the Spirit without limit, in full. Verse 35, God the Father has been given authority over all things in heaven and on earth. These things tell us that Jesus is more than just a gifted teacher, a great philosopher and an engaging storyteller. He is the Messiah, the Son of God, come to save the world. How amazing that God would send this person, his son, to effect our rescue. The Father must really care and love for his, have love for his people. So the question we're left with, and we must ask ourselves, is do we believe or not? Have we been transformed in such a way that we are living as children of the light? We need to be certain of where we stand because there is a rescue mission underway and the consequences of belief and unbelief are eternal. If we are in the darkness, we need to come to the light, to Jesus, with true repentance and belief that he is the Messiah who can save. If we have come to the light, remember that we too are now light and we must look to those around us, our neighbours, our friends and our family, and our lives need to credit God for his powerful transformation in us and so point to the saving grace of Jesus. John ends this chapter with the gospel message one last time. Verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Thanks, everyone.